It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. It's primary day once again as voters go to the polls in Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Minnesota, and Arkansas. State and congressional elections that all have major national political implications. And diplomatic chaos as the Biden administration works to walk back the president's comments that he would use U.S. troops to defend against a potential invasion of Taiwan. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. For this and more, we bring in our panel this week, Fox News political analyst Juan Williams, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner, Byron York, and Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yingst. Trey, I want to start with you. You know, Ukraine came up essentially in the question to President Biden. He's in, he at the time was in Japan, uh, with the premise that the administration did not uh, commit to U.S. military boots on the ground in Ukraine, but would he, should China invade Taiwan? And the follow-up was, you would? And he said, that's what we committed to do. But then, the day late, well, hours later, the White House sends out a piece of paper that says, the policy hasn't changed. And then a day later, the president comes out and says the policy hasn't changed. And uh, I said it clearly. And it, it just had people scratching their heads. And from a Ukrainian perspective, I'm sure they're saying, wait a second, you'd use U.S. troops in Taiwan, but you wouldn't use them in Ukraine? Exactly. And look, the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian leadership in the capital of Kyiv are watching very closely to what President Biden says and what he does around the world, because there are a lot of questions about red lines for the American administration. There are a lot of questions about use of force and that ultimate question about the possibility of U.S. boots on the ground. And so when they hear, even if it is a gaffe by the president, any sort of comment about U.S. troops on the ground anywhere in the world, the Ukrainian people are going to be watching closely. We've been talking with troops on the ground outside the second largest Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, and they have talked extensively about the American support. And widely, there is an appreciation of the U.S. government supplying weapons, ammunition, and protective gear to Ukrainian on the ground, and they're willing to fight this battle on their own. And even off in the distance now, as we speak, Brett, there are air raid sirens. And I'm going to see if you can listen here in the city of Kharkiv. This is the second largest city. And it just shows you how under attack the Ukrainian people are. And so they are looking to the Americans for that critical support in the form of weapons and ammunition. But 
they would welcome any sort of foreign support to fight the Russians as they continue this invasion. Certainly, the administration has made clear it is off the table for Ukraine, but they are watching and listening very closely to what the administration says in other parts of the world. You know, Trey, you have spent uh, some days there in Kharkiv, and um, and obviously it had been a real battle back and forth. And as you mentioned, air raid sirens um, just just tonight. Has the dynamic changed uh, while we're talking about Ukraine? Has has it changed uh, now? The Russians kind of hold Mariupol, um, and there's still this fight in the east. But is there a sense that the Russians' uh, ambitions? have significantly changed as the Ukrainians push back in different places. This war has certainly entered a need, and it is focused in the eastern Donbass region, but it's very important to look at what's happening on the ground. There was this narrative for a long time. They were basically giving up the quite the opposite. There was a big announcement from the Ukrainian government that the battle for Kharkiv was over and that Ukrainians had won. We were on the front lines just yesterday, and there is intense fighting outside this major population center, a city that normally has a population of around 1.4 million people. And it's not just here. All along the eastern front line, Russian forces are making minimal progress, but they are still advancing forward. And there are some key cities that Ukrainians are reportedly surrounded in, in the central part of the Donbass region. And among those Ukrainian troops, thousands of civilians. So it creates yet another massive issue for the international community that watches this very closely and calls for the respect of human rights and international law. Because as we have seen many examples since this war began, the Russians are not respecting international law. There is clear evidence that will be investigated as war crimes that took place on the ground in Ukraine. And just this week, there was a young Russian soldier who was sentenced to life in prison for murdering someone in a northern Ukrainian town when the invasion started. So we can expect to see more focus on the eastern part of Ukraine from those who are watching. But the big question is, how long will the attention span of the American people, of the world population, stay on Ukraine? As we know, these news cycles, they come and they go. And the war rages on here. There are still civilians and soldiers dying every day. But there are a lot of other stories happening in the world, and it's part of what Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is hoping he can do, which is basically maintain the world's attention on this conflict. Yeah. Byron, uh, speaking of Ukraine, the the president and the administration were clear that the support would be material and monetary, but would not include U.S. boots on the ground. While special forces and Marines are now being considered to be uh, to defend the U.S. embassy that is reopened in Kiev, um, that was pretty clear in the policy from the Biden administration. The policy towards Taiwan is technically called strategic ambiguity, but I'm not sure it's this ambiguous or supposed to be. Because this, honestly, was a big back and forth that had China reacting, that had people in Washington reacting, and the president walking back his own statement. You know, absolutely. First of all, the president has the constitutional authority to conduct foreign policy. And strategic ambiguity is not in the Constitution. It's, it, it, can't, it can be changed at any time. It's a, it's a policy. And for the president to say not once, not twice, but three times, uh, that the U.S. would, in fact, uh, come to Taiwan's uh, defense. It, it makes a joke of the idea of strategic 
uh, ambiguity. I mean, that the idea is supposed to be we're keeping China guessing that they can't be, you know, sure of what the United States would do. So, you know, it, it seems that to me that if the president says this enough, uh, maybe we should just stop treating it as another kind of patented Joe Biden gaffe and just say he has changed the policy, or if not, he has revealed the actual policy behind strategic ambiguity. So I think all the nations you just mentioned are really correct to take this seriously. Yeah, Juan, what about this? I mean, who you get a sense of the, the questions, and, and conservatives ask them, who's really right, running the White House? Um, you know, with the White House staff putting out this statement right after the president said what he said. He hadn't even gotten off the stage yet with the Japanese prime minister, and the statement <clears throat> was already ending up in reporters' inboxes. And no one said, hey, wait a second, Mr. President, did you mean to say that? Is the policy changed? They said, this is definitely not the policy, you know, and put out the statement. And then the next day, he was asked a question and, in fact, said the same thing. But said it in a way like, no, I was very clear, but he really wasn't. So how, what do you make of this? Just a gaffe, or do you think it's, it's him saying what the policy really is and he's not supposed to say it? I don't think he walked it back at all. I think the people that have walked it back are people like the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and, as you mentioned, some people putting out statements at the White House. But I think it's quite clear that President Biden sees his legacy not only as rebuffing the Russian incursion into the Ukraine, but also taking a stand against authoritarian governments expanding their reach throughout the world. And that, of course, the principle here would be China. And so he sees himself, and I think he's putting his voice very clearly uh, at the forefront of saying, China, don't mess with us. Don't mess with the United States. Don't think that you can, without any consequence, walk into Taiwan. What we've seen in Hong Kong is that they have basically taken over, uh, usurped all independence in that state, uh, despite the fact that uh, the United States, the international community, has major economic operations based in Hong Kong. It has not stopped China from essentially just calling the shot and asserting their will over the people of Hong Kong. I think Biden's making a clear distinction here. Now, with regard to strategic ambiguity, I don't think it necessarily changes the policy, and I think that's why you've seen the White House and others say, well, the policy's still the same. But the clear siren voice coming from Biden on this, I think, if I was the leader of China, has to be heard clearly and might, in fact, cause them to be reluctant to become yeah, more. I, I hear what you're saying, or I hear what you're portraying out there, but he was anything but clear, Juan. And he was asked specifically a question about you chose not to put U.S. military troops on the ground in Ukraine. If China attacks Taiwan, would the U.S. military defend Taiwan? His answer was yes. And then they said, are you sure? He said, yes, that's what we committed to do. Ask the next day, a very similar question. Has the policy changed? Because if his first answer was accurate, it would be a significant change in policy. An outward, not, no longer ambiguity, and, and very clear that we as a U.S. military would defend Taiwan. Then he said, no, the policy has not changed. And he said, he was asked, would the U.S. military be used? And he said, no. So for between 24 hours, he was night and day on the same question. So I don't understand how you can say he was clear. 
Because I think it's very clear the policy in terms of his thinking, as well as the Defense Department's thinking, has not changed. What is the key element here is Biden being willing to give voice to the idea that he is willing to stand up to China. Um, the question is, and I think this is really what we are all discussing, is, is it the will of the American people that we would send troops to the Ukraine? Answer, no. Is it the will of the American people? Would they back a President Biden if he was to say we have to stand up to China at this moment? The only thing that we can say with certainty is within the last few days we've seen Republicans and Democrats, a bipartisan basis, very unusual in these highly polarized times, say yes to I think it was $40 billion going to Ukraine. And that we have heard from people ranging from Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, to Lindsey Graham, to Nancy Pelosi, saying this is a signal to China with regard to their expansionist ambitions. No, and that, you're exactly right. But to, to follow your logic, would the American people be, be behind the U.S. military being used to defend Taiwan from China? I'm not sure you're going to get to positive territory there either, unless somebody explains why it's in our national security interest to do so. And there are good explanations. Senator Tom Cotton was on our air today uh, saying how important it is to stand up to China, not only that for geopolitical reasons, to a gateway to Asia, where we, you know, should China take over Taiwan, let alone the microchips and all of these other things. But you would have to make that case to the American people. Trey, I want to take it back to you. We just talked about the $40 billion, and that adds to $13-plus billion that's already been allocated. But the question is, is all of that getting to Ukraine? And is Ukraine satisfied with what the U.S. is doing? There's a lot of talk about what we're doing and what money's going out, but is it being seen on the ground? In many ways, it is being seen on the ground. These howitzer artillery units are being used already, implemented by Ukrainian troops in the eastern part of the country, and it gives them heavy weapons in addition to the ones they already have to push back the Russian advance. But there are two major issues on the ground. One has to do with the supply line for Ukrainians to actually get this support to the front lines that are now sometimes a 20-hour drive from the Polish border where the weapons are coming in. And the other has to do with the question of whether or not Russia will continue to target these weapons once they make it into the country. We've seen strikes in recent days. The Russians say they are targeting Western weapons supplies in the Western part of Ukraine. And if that continues, it does become a slippery slope of what the United States publicly says and condemns about those actions. And then, of course, the question of if the Russians would ever start to target these weapons supplies as they land in Poland, because that brings up the concept of NATO and Article 5 and the uh, mutual defense alliance that the United States is a part of. And while this is largely seen as not the most likely scenario, everything is on the table and being considered by Ukrainian officials and American officials who are watching very closely what's happening on the ground. Most U.S. defense officials did not believe that the Russians were going to launch a full-scale invasion into Ukraine. Ukrainian leadership, including President Zelensky, also publicly did not believe this was the most likely scenario. But Russian President Vladimir Putin has proven time and time again that he is quite unpredictable and willing to lose large amounts of his troops in an effort to push forward this invasion. 
So you have those two major issues. But the bottom line is the Ukrainians are using these weapons already on the battlefield. But each and every day, as some of those weapons get destroyed, as they use more of these artillery shells firing on Russian positions, they will need to be restocked. And that brings up a broader question about whether or not the United States and other Western countries will continue this level of military support to the country. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and you're right to point out the concern of President Zelensky and others that uh, the U.S. operates in chapters and the Ukrainian chapter you know, may start to close as far as the attention as other things take over the front burner. Today is primary day. By the way, three months ago today was the day Russia launched that invasion into Ukraine. Hard to believe. Three months ago today. All right. We're going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Byron, on today's primary day, five states, as we continue the tick towards November uh, and the midterms, Ukraine is not an issue that's coming up heavily in a lot of these races. In fact, most of the races we're following, it has not come up, come up at all. And obviously we were engrossed in that as a nation in the first month plus. Um, now these races deal with inflation, deal with gas prices, deal with uh, baby formula accessibility, deal with the southern border, deal with crime in big cities. Um, and there's not a lot of foreign policy, not usual in midterms anyway, but in the wake of what's happening around the world, interesting to point out. Yeah, and, and the other issue uh, is Joe Biden himself. You know, the president's job approval rating is the single best predictor of how his party is going to do in midterm uh, elections. There was a new memo out this week from Doug Sosnick, who's a a uh, senior Democratic strategist, pollster, um, got well-known working for Bill Clinton in the 1990s, uh, which basically said Democrats may have a distant hope that if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that would energize the Democratic base. But overall, the picture looks terrible uh, for Democrats. And he painted the, he, he set it up this way. Joe Biden starts with a honeymoon. Then in July of, of last year, he holds this event, July 4th, to kind of declare independence from COVID. Uh, that, of course, didn't happen. We had Delta and we had Omicron. COVID did not go away. Then the next month, there was the terrible uh, bungled uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And basically, at that point, the public began losing faith in Biden's ability to handle problems. So when inflation becomes an all-encompassing sort of problem. They don't have any faith that he or his administration can handle that. And of all the issues you mentioned, inflation is far and above uh, number one, and there appears to be uh, no uh, indication that it's going to slow down by November. So the worry, Sosnick's conclusion, the worry is, is that voters have already made up their minds. We're not talking about the last two weeks before the election. We're talking about minds made up right now. And Juan, in addition to that, and, you know, Democrats obviously have a couple of things that, that could change some of those races. One is 
Roe v. Wade, if that decision comes out like the leaked uh, draft of the ruling suggested, um, maybe that motivates some of the base. Uh, obviously, it's a strategy to go after the former President Trump, and the January 6th committee may bring up uh, some, some of the details there front and center uh, and super MAGA or however uh, President Biden talks about it. Um, but really, the economy drives the day. And it seems like uh, there just seems to be a lot of concern about where we are uh, and Democrats' response uh, to that is going to be interesting. Without a doubt. And, you know, I would add in history works against uh, Biden and the Democrats here. Uh, We know historically midterms, the incumbent party loses seats in the House and the Senate. Uh, And. This is not in any way an anomaly. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, all of the last five presidents have seen this happen to them. So that history is pretty powerful. Uh, The economy, the coronavirus, uh, even the spike in violent crime all makes people, I think, kind of grumpy and discontented. And they tend to take it out on the party in power. So that's why uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, both think that right now it looks good for Republicans going into these midterms. You mentioned Roe v. Wade. That is a a potential game changer in terms of the amount of energy, the idea that you would get people to turn out who might otherwise be staying home. Midterms are known for low voter turnout. Um, But is it a game changer in terms of the actual result? That's far from conclusive at this point. It would be pure speculation. Yeah. What about gas prices? You know, and and people facing the pump every time they go fill up and it's exponentially more than they were paying just months ago. And in a question about gas prices, President Biden, again, over in Asia, said we are in the process of an incredible transition, an incredible transition that eventually is going to be very good, suggesting and, and for the longest time it was a conspiracy theory that. You know, when Republicans said, no, 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 this is the plan, that Democrats want high gas prices so that we're forced to go towards electric vehicles and electric and and green energy and that it's going to be a painful transition. He put it to words saying incredible transition. Is that going to help a Raphael Warnock in Georgia? Is that going to help uh, some Democratic congressman in a moderate district when he's asked about gas prices? Uh, no, but I don't know that that's the principal driving reason for, one, people to go to vote or what people are voting on. I think people are voting lo- on larger kind of, you know, I want the future of the country to be better. There's so many issues that concern me right now. When you look at the poll numbers on the direction of the country, they're abysmal. Uh, people yeah. just think things are just not going in the right way. And I think they're blaming Republicans as well as Democrats, but the Democrats are the ones in power. They yeah, have the right. most to lose at this juncture. That's right. Trey, last question. How much uh, do Ukrainians pay attention to U.S. politics at all? Uh, I know I've talked to a lot of foreign leaders who get frustrated with having to deal with another administration potentially every four years and a completely different set of foreign policy goals. Uh, but we're in the middle of midterms, which really don't factor in too much. But is there a, a level of interest? There is some level of interest depending on where you're at. When we talk to troops in the front lines, they are pretty focused on that military aid that's flowing into the country. 
Many that we talked to in recent days are well aware of how much money the Americans are providing to support the Ukrainian effort to push back this invasion. But when it comes to the state, local level politics, most Ukrainians that we've even brought up the concept to are so focused on the war, they haven't had time to watch US news or really be up to date on what's happening. But I will say, broadly speaking, I've been surprised with how closely Ukrainian soldiers on the front have been watching the news. They know what's happening around the world. They have access to information. And even one young 25-year-old that we talked to yesterday in a trench was talking about American politics and the decisions of the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress to send support to Ukraine. So they're aware, but their focus does remain on the ground here in this country at war. It's interesting. Well, Trey, we really appreciate you being on the front lines for us and bringing us the eyes and ears, being our eyes and ears on the ground in a very dangerous situation. So, and thanks for doing this uh, this podcast. Uh, now for a bit of history. Friday Night Lights, May 24th, 1935. The first night game in the history of Major League Baseball was played thanks to the recently installed lights at Crosley Field in Cincinnati, 25,000 fans watched as President Roosevelt symbolically switched on the lights from Washington, D.C. The Cincinnati Reds defeated the Philadelphia Phillies 2-1 as other teams would go on to install stadium lights throughout the 1930s and 40s. The Chicago Cubs were the last team to break the only day games tradition more than 50 years later in 1988. Hard to believe. That'll do it for us this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Byron, Juan, and Trey, all the way from Kharkiv, I'm Brett Baer. See you next time. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.